All right, if you would, turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and your labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? And as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's a glorious prayer there in verses 10 to 13 that we're going to try to meditate upon this morning. But let me back up to give you a little bit of a, a background of what's going on here. Uh, let me remind you that this letter was written to an infant church, maybe a month old, when Paul had to leave. He came there, many were converted, the church was formed, and then he had to leave. And this, this new church with these new Christians, these baby Christians, they, they testified immediately to the work of salvation in their lives. In the first chapter, he tells us that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from the heavens whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, that should be in our mind when we come to chapter 3 in this prayer. We, we need to keep in mind the, the radical nature of their transformation. This should not be underestimated when you come to his prayer for their sanctification in chapter 3. You have to understand when it said in chapter 1 that they turned from idols, this was a radical turning in their culture. Idolatry dominated and directed everything about their lives. It, it dominated their home life, their, their work life, their ethics, their politics, and obviously it dominated their religious activity. And so their conversion to Christ now it, it just is an amazing testimony to the power of God's sovereign grace. And it had radically changed them. And that radical change turned them from idols to the true and living God. And that caused problems. Their transformation separated them from everything in their lives that would have been considered normal in their culture and normal in their thinking. And as a result of this transformation, 
Their lives were set apart unto God for his glory and praise. But but also with that came attack and persecution, attacks from pagans and unbelieving Jews alike. This is one reason why when Paul writes this, that he wants to come see them face to face and they want him to come desperately. That's why why he says that, because they, they needed his fellowship. It's one reason they're crying out for it and he's wanting to give it. They wanted his fellowship again, his teaching, his instructions. It was important to them. And think about this. Put yourself in the place of the Thessalonians, and it shouldn't be all that hard to do, considering our culture is not much different. But the Thessalonians here, their lives were, were now changed in such a way that everyone seemed to know it. Everyone seemed to see it. And it caused, like I said, affliction and persecution and probably a push to compromise their convictions. Think about it. They were set apart from their culture to serve a new king. Not the idols of their past, not the idols of their family, but the true king, the Lord Jesus himself. They now had a new set of values driven by the doctrines that they had been taught in that short time with the Apostle Paul. He taught them about love because he taught them the gospel. He taught them about the love that expresses itself selflessly in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Living our life, taking our place as a substitute, rising on the third day to declare that we are justified based on his righteousness, his works, not our own. This set them apart. And it also set them apart in this, that they were taught through Paul and through his own living illustration that the love that they now had heard about in Christ, they were now to put on in Christ. They were to put that love on display And in two simple ways they would do that, in two simple ways that we are called to do that. Number one, by obeying his greatest commandment, to love God, love one another. And secondly, to obey his great commission, to go into the world, the world of paganism, the world that is coming against them and claim that there are many ways to God. And yet he is telling them to go in there and say there is an exclusive way to God. They must teach the exclusivity of Christ in the face of idolatry. And again, this brought much trouble upon their lives. They turned away from the culture around them. And in return, the culture paid them back the way only the culture can do it, which was with animosity, with anger, with persecution, with affliction. And they were being persecuted constantly. According to Paul, according to what we see in Paul's own life and ministry, they were being persecuted for their faith in Christ and their new convictions about love in Christ. Now, combining these together, you can imagine what it would have been like to be in that early church. There are many temptations for them to now compromise their doctrine about Christ, to fit in with that society, with that paganistic worldview. And there was many temptations for them to compromise on their view of love because their culture's view of love was certainly not agape love. It was eros love. And they would have been tempted to go back just to to fit in. But yet they are going to stand firm. And the testimony that comes to Paul through Timothy here, and Paul is elated. Verses 9 to 13 really are Paul busting forth in praise to God, thanksgiving to God with a petition for the people of God. So that's what we see there in verses 9 to 10. We see and hear the Apostle Paul begin to pray for these weary and suffering, faithful and loving saints. 
And again, that prayer is driven by thankfulness to God for their evident faith and love. Look at verse nine. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? He knows that God is the author and perfecter of their faith and love. He knows that he is going to be glorified through their faith and love. And he is thanking God for bringing that faith and love to fruition in such a way that it went throughout all of Macedonia. The testimony of their faith and love was, if you will, going global. It was spreading out. And he's rejoicing in that. And with Thanksgiving, he now comes to a time of petition, a time of prayer. He's compelled now in verses 10 through 11 to to pray for these weary and suffering saints. And I just want you to to think about what he prayed and, and how he prayed and what his prayer actually makes us think about this morning. I'm not going to break down everything about each verse here like I normally would, but I do want us to see an overarching, I think, theme that goes throughout this this section of scripture that's important because this prayer, I'll give you three points to kind of hang on to and then we'll see what happens. But this prayer um, that he's compelled to pray is a, is a prayer that is full of, number one, Christ exalting devotion toward the saints. Secondly, it's a prayer that's filled with Christ exalting passion for the saints to to love one another, to love others. And it's a prayer that's filled with a Christ-exalting expectation. I would add a glorious expectation for those who are displaying what he has seen in them already. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, we we hear, I think, the first point here. We hear the the Christ-exalting devotion of Paul pour out of his heart. This is his affection for these saints because of what God is doing in them and how God has united them together in Christ and the gospel. He says, we pray most earnestly, night and day. Now, this is this is a devoted prayer. This is a, a prayer that's above and beyond normal prayer. It, it earnestly is a super abundant word. It's a word that would wake him up in the night and think, I got to pray for these Thessalonians. And he's praying specifically that, that he may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, there's nothing that can Take the place of face-to-face fellowship. We see that here. Though he's writing a letter and it's inspired by the Spirit, that's certainly sufficient to care for them in the immediate. But he also comes to them in the person of himself and preaches the truth and expands upon that because that's what was lacking in them. They had a superficial understanding, a new Christian understanding of love. They had a new Christian understanding of ethics. It was all, if you will, infantile at that point. It's all he had time for. And so he wants to come back and fill in the blanks, expand, put some application to the doctrine that he's already expounded to them. And I think what we see in this, though, that's important is is his devotion. This man has a devotion to Christ and it reflects Christ. His devotion to these saints, I think, points to the greater devotion of our great intercessor, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's let's look at a passage in John 17 to see what his devotion was toward us in intercession. John 17, verse 9. Look what it says about Christ's high priestly prayer for us. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's an exclusive prayer. It's a prayer for the saints. 
All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. That's a securing prayer right there for the saints. He, Jesus, God the Son, asking God the Father to protect us, secure us, keep us in the doctrine of what we have learned about himself. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with you, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, so as we see this shaping up, Jesus is interceding for those who would be kept by God, yet persecuted by the world. And again, Paul is emulating that in his own prayer life, his own devotion. Jesus is devoted to our continuation in the faith and the glorification of his own name. And so he goes on to say this. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's interceding for the saints to be sanctified. Much like what we see Paul doing in 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13. This is important, I think, because Paul says to us in other epistles, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is the one who has the greatest devotion to his people Christ himself is devoted to his own glory through his people. He's not going to lose one of us. He is going to be exalted in our transformation as well. Yet he also calls us to obey the means of grace he's given to see this transformation take place. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to I'm going to come to you. I want to come there and I'm praying for this and I want to supply what's lacking in your faith, your understanding, your doctrine. That's what the word faith is really implying here. In verse 10. And then the second point that we'll look at real quickly here is this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12. Here we're hearing a Christ-exalting passion flow out of Paul's prayer. We hear his heart in verse 10. Now we hear the words of his prayer and the passion that Christ has for his people reflected through Paul's own Devotion to them in this petition. Verse 11, he says, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, here's what I find really compelling and interesting about the Apostle Paul. In verse 10, he says, I want to come and and I want to. Help fill in the gaps, what is lacking in your faith. And then in verse 11, he actually begins to do that. He gives us a high Christology in verse 11. Notice in verse 11, there are two subjects, God the Father and the Lord Jesus. There is only one verb, that he may direct you. He is affirming the deity of Christ, the equality of Jesus with the Father. He is saying, God is who I'm praying to. God the Son, God the Father. That they, it says, together as one in one essence, may make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 
Paul's passion in this prayer is the passion of Christ. Christ wants his people to reflect his nature. And his nature is that of love as he defines it. Not eros, not emotion, not sexuality, but actual love, true love, the the very standard by which all love should be measured. And Paul's prayer here is a reflection of what Christ's passion is for his people. Go with me back to John, John 15, and, and listen to what we see here in this passage, 15 verses 7 to 17. This gives us an idea of what Christ's passion is for his people. And he wants us to reflect this. He wants us to reflect this among ourselves and to others. This is really important to get in verse 12. It's not just for the saints. It's for the lost. More than that, he wants us to show the love of Christ to our enemies. The very ones who persecute them. He wants them to see the testimony of the power of a sovereign God who can transform wicked sinners wrapped up in a culture and make them image bearers of himself, even toward those who were enemies against them. Because isn't that what he did for us? We were all enemies of God. Every single one of us, a rebel at heart, hater of God, follower of the prince of the air, Satan. We were all his enemies, yet he shows us abounding love. And he wants that abounding love to increase and point to his love. Not to our ability to express love, but the love that we've received in him. He wants it to sanctify us. He wants it to make our love abounding so people see his love in it. Look at verse 7, chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. Now, here's the catch in verse seven, by the way. You're going to ask. You're going to ask according to his will. If you're his people, you're not going to ask to heap up selfish things for yourself. You're going to ask in line with his word. And What is God's greatest desire? That is What is man's chief purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever? God wants us to pray for others to see his glory. And so he says, I I want you to pray. And if you're asking anything about conversion, if you're asking anything about going out and doing evangelism, if you're asking anything about teaching the truth, exalting Christ, I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to bless it. By this, my father is glorified. He's glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He prays in John 17 to sanctify us in the truth. And that truth is going to temper our hearts, control our prayers, control our actions. And it's going to display that this is taking place in us that is done from outside of us. It is done by grace. And it proves that we are followers of him because we are united in his will to follow his word. Verse 9. As the father has loved me. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And in the full is, is, is not full as if you think of it as the top of the cup, but full as in pouring out of the cup. There's no end to the fullness of God's love and the joy that we receive in that love. And that's what Paul's praying for, that their love would increase. It would spill over, right? Then in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another 
as, that's a very important phrase, as I have loved you. Then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have. I've heard from my father and I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit bearing should abide so that whatever you ask in the father, ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, this is important. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Listen, he, he says, I, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you unto salvation. I picked you out. I chose you out of a, a, a number of people who deserved hell, deserved God's wrath. I chose you, chose you in such a way, he says, that I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my love in you. It's going to abound in you. You're going to love my word, love the truth. You're going to display my work because he says, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that fruit, he says, should abide our, our spiritual fruit, our sanctification, our holiness, our walk with Christ is not based on our abilities. It's based on his grace. He is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, but he's working through us to display it. He's displaying that God can take vessels of wrath, if you will, clay pots or maybe as Paul would say, privy pots, and he can turn those privy pots into trophies of his grace through transformation, through sanctification that he works out in us. That's what Paul is praying that that would happen in this church, that they would make manifest what was really going on in their hearts through their love for one another and for all. He's, he's praying that they would reflect Christ's love to others. Go back with me to First Thessalonians 3. He's praying here that the love that Christ expressed to us would abundantly overflow on to others in this passage. Now, I hope you understand that the word love here he's speaking of is, as I said, the word agape. Agape, the Greek term for the word love that's used here. And agape simply means this, godlike love. It's the kind of love that gives to the needy, not the worthy. And that would be all of us that have been loved by God. We are needy. We come to him with our hands lifted up in anger because our sins have compelled us to rebel against him. Yet he knew what we needed most. So he opened up our clenched fist and gave us his gift. God doesn't need our permission for anything. He is sovereign. He's almighty and he's good in his sovereignty. And Paul is praying that the kind of love God shows us would show up in them. He's praying that it would flow out of the Thessalonians onto the saints there in the church and then even onto their persecutors. That's why he says, for all, Christ's love for us was known to us when we were yet his enemies. He made it manifest to us by opening our eyes to see our sins against him and to show us what he has done to satisfy his own righteous demands by sending his son. What God has done is sent his son to take our place and conquer the very enemy that's within us. And that was done out of love. And we should all understand 
that when we come to our persecutors, we should have great compassion because of that love which God has shown us. Our enemies are ultimately not our enemies. They're the enemies of God. And God conquers enemies to magnify his power and grace. And we are testimonies of that. Now, this is an interesting section in Thessalonians. Go back there. You may be there. I'm not there. It's an interesting section, and, and I read it, and it, it puzzles me when I read this section. Because if you read from chapter 1 all the way here to chapter 3, verse 9, it's a whole lot of praise and adoration to God for the work of faith and love and hope that the, the saints at Thessalonica are already showing, displaying. And so, so my only question when I come to this passage and this prayer for them to increase in their love and abound more is, is, is why? I mean, they're doing it. Why? Why? Why this prayer? Why here? Why is it given at this point in the letter to the Thessalonians? Why is it there? I think about it. He just he just basically gives us an illustration through his own love for them by, by his devotion and, and his passion and his his prayer of expectation that he knows this is going to take place in them because because he heard the good news already about them. He heard the good news about how they have persevered in their faith and love under persecution. And, and he's saying, I want to see more. I'm going to pray that God will manifest more of that love, more of that trust in him through your sanctification. And if you think about this, this is this is something that no matter how old you are in the faith, you should be praying even for yourself. You may be mature in the faith. Maybe you have been a Christian for a long time. But I'm sure that you can look at your own life and think, I am not abounding in love like I should be. The church at Ephesus was one of the most theologically sound churches in the New Testament. Yet when you come to the book of Revelation, they are the ones who are most deficient in love. They can love truth, but not love the God of truth. And we can fall prey to that as well. Paul's wanting to make sure that doesn't happen here. And there are a number of reasons why I think Paul prays this, prays that their love would abound um, and we can relate to these reasons. They, they, they obviously in verse 10, we see that they still needed theological training. They needed to know more about the doctrine of God's triune nature. They needed to know more about the application of his agape toward us, his practical application of love. They needed to know more of this to, to sustain themselves, if you will, in that culture in a way that would magnify Christ's work in them. And on one hand, the culture was against them, right? We, we saw that. They needed help because the culture is persecuting them. But on another hand, their indwelling sin is bringing a lot of grief in them too. It's still part of them. This, this culture that they came out of is still has a remnant hold, if you will, upon their own hearts. And they need to be sanctified, set apart from this culture more and more. And he's going to say that love for God and the love of God will separate you unto God. And this is my argument this morning. Listen, sanctification is not done by legalism. It's done by grace. Sanctification, God-exalting sanctification, is done out of the heart that is rejoicing in the grace that you've received through the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning death on the cross that took a sinner and brought you out of the dregs of depravity and brought you into the very presence in the throne room of God himself without shame. That drives sanctification. Not trying to push and pressure someone into it. The culture was against them. Their own nature was against them. 
Paul's saying there's something that can cure this. There's something that can protect you in this. Don't be don't be caught up in the culture. Don't be caught up in your own sense of unworthiness and your own sins. Don't listen to the culture's voice. That's a, a word we need to hear today. Listen, their culture was not unlike ours. Get this. Their culture, as you'll see in chapter four, next time I get in there, their culture would have said what's going on in chapter four is normal, is good. Actually, they believe that you would have a wife. That's a good thing because she can procreate. She can have children. But then you would have multiple women outside of your wife to entertain yourself. That was condoned in their culture. This influence in their culture was much like our own. It commended, if you will, sexual sin. And it also condoned vengeance against your enemies. And Paul's saying love will change both those views. The love of God in Christ will change both of those views. That's going to be his argument in chapter 4. He repeats the word love and the need for love even more so there. But that cultural influence was still ingrained in these saints and their thinking. And, and through this prayer, I think they're, they're being given an insight into what God's devotion is toward them. God's devoted to sanctify them through pointing them back to his abiding love that's on them. And so this, this prayer, although it, it comes right after the good news from Timothy about their faith and love, you have to notice that it also comes just before God's instructions about practical sanctification. Look at chapter four. Finally, then, my brothers, we ask and urge you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, that is live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your Sanctification being set apart, sacred, set apart unto God. This is the will of God that you're set apart from the culture, set apart from your own desires, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's normal for them. It's part of their cultural, part of their worship, even in idolatry. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, in holiness. God called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That, that came in chapter 1 when Paul was there with them. He gave them the gospel that taught them about the love of God, that love that's been poured upon them. And then he says this, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, his argument here, I think, in this this passage, along with his prayer, is that, uh, look, if you get a right understanding of God's love for you in Christ, that love's going to pour out of you onto others. And you're not going to defraud your brother. 
You're, you're not going to commit sexual sin against others because God's love does no wrong. And to take what is not yours is wrong and it's doing wrong unto others. Sex is reserved for the blessedness of marriage. One woman, one man for life. Anything outside of that is doing harm to others, including what you do with your mind. Because adultery is something that begins in the heart and it works its way out into the flesh. But here he's saying, look, this this is what's going to constrain you. This is what's going to control you. Look, if you love the person next to you, whether they're a pagan or whether they're a believer, because of the love that you've received in Christ, you're not going to do them wrong. They need grace. They need mercy. They need compassion. So why would you think it's justifiable to sin against an unbeliever? It's never it's never acceptable to sin against anyone. Because God has set you in this world, as Paul Wilson said this morning, as salt, as light, to point to the work of Christ in you. Now, go back with me to chapter 3 here. I think that Paul's prayer um, is laid out here right after the commendations and right before this application in chapter 4. Because the Holy Spirit is trying to help us to see how, how exalted and how powerful God's sanctifying work is in Christ. The abounding love of Christ is what set us apart in the first place, and it's what will keep us apart from sin in the future. Saints, the Thessalonians needed to know that, and I think we need to know that too, lest we do become legalists. Here's what you need to understand about legalism. There is the type that says, I have to do to get saved, but there's also a type that thinks that I've got to keep doing to keep saved. To be pleasing to God, to be honoring to God, I gotta keep doing it, I gotta keep doing it, I gotta follow it, I gotta follow this rule, I gotta follow that rule. That's not what Paul is commending here. Legalism can never change the affections of your heart. Only regeneration can. Only Jesus can give you a new heart. New affections. Where you see those around you as those who are made in the image of God and deserve to be loved for His sake. To make much of how he has loved you for his sake. I believe this prayer helps us see something very important this morning. I think this prayer helps us see how the love of God is both the source of our positional sanctification. And it is the motivation of our progressive sanctification. Do you get that? The love of God that we are to display. It came to us first in Christ. We've been set apart unto God through Christ's atoning work. And that love for us in Christ now is what motivates us to continue on magnifying him in our works. Progressive sanctification flows out of positional sanctification. And it's the joy of your heart as a Christian. Not always easy, but I guarantee you when you are honoring God out of the joy that you have within your heart for what Christ has accomplished for you in our place, you will enjoy even the difficult things. There's a pleasure that you receive in that. That God will bless. We need to keep that in mind because sometimes we can get into this mindset of like, okay, there's these rules in chapter four. We got to, okay, don't do this. Don't do that. Okay, yeah, they're there, but they, they come after the indicative. The imperative follows the indicative. What's indicated in chapter one is this is God's work. Out of God's work, you work with joy. That's what leads to true sanctification. If you don't think that way, you begin to think that your performance is going to add to that. God's going to love me more if I do more. Or you're going to think that, look, I, I can actually lose something if I don't do enough. And that's a danger. 
We need to understand that God's love for us is abounding. And his love will perform its perfect work in those who believe, which is to magnify Christ on the last day, which is where he's, he's going here in a moment. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not just the last day we need to look forward to. We need to look forward to his work in the present. His love is, is now what leads us to long for holiness and to honor Christ. That sacrifice of love he made for us. It's that, that love for God that we've been given that moves us away from the things that we once loved and leads us to the things that we once hated. His ordinances, His laws, His rules, His judgments. Why do we rejoice in those? Because Christ kept them for us. I can rest from my works in Christ and His righteous works. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. God's love is what will lead us to holiness, to pursue it, to honor Christ's sacrifice. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by God's judicial declaration, justified by faith, not by works, not by good deeds, not by performance, not by religious activity, we're declared right by faith, trust. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his favor, his grace, in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have actual hope that on the last day, God will be magnified through our transformation, through our sanctification. I'm assured of that because of Christ's accomplishment. On the last day, we will see the work of Christ made manifest. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. His love has been poured into us. You can't contain the love of Christ if you've been regenerated. It will pour out of you. The very nature of it is like living water. It's going to continue to spring up and pour over. And it's going to bless others. And it's going to point others to the hope that we have in Christ. It's through his loving sacrifice that this love is now poured out on us. It's that that loving sacrifice that now sets us free from the enslavement of sin's power over us. It's it's through his loving sacrifice that sin is put to death through the death of Christ. It no longer has dominion over us. I don't think of sin as this enemy that's always going to be there to haunt me. I think of sin as something that's been conquered in Christ. It's present in my flesh, yes. But Christ has overcame my flesh. Christ will redeem even my flesh. Believe it or not, 50 years will finally be eliminated and I will look new again one day. By God's grace, we will be transformed by his sacrifice of love. And it's that love that Christ has expressed to us that's being poured out in us that changes the way we live practically. Listen to this. We can now love God because he first loved us. We can now obey his great commandment because his love works in us to do his will and good pleasure. We can obey his great commission because his sacrificial love is revealed through our evangelism. We can encourage one another because his adopting love has united us together as one. 
We can put sin to death because his love has led him to the cross to die in our place. It no longer has authority over us. This is what stirs up true affections for God that lead to sanctification. His love is the soil in which holiness grows and it bears spiritual fruit that resembles Christ. That points others to Jesus. His love for us keeps us from living in sin and loving sin. If you are regenerate, if you've been born again, you sin. You still struggle with indwelling sin. We all do. But if you're born again, you hate that sin that led Christ to the cross to take your place. And you want to turn from it constantly. And you want to turn to him in faith every time, knowing that I can't cleanse this leprous spot. Only Christ's blood could do that. His, his abounding love, then, is, is what is poured out on us so that we would bear witness to his all-sufficient grace that will one day finally and completely conform us into his image. See, see, love, God's love for us in Christ, is what leads to this. His kindness, his loving kindness, it leads to true life, eternal life. Life that magnifies the life of Christ. Now, back in... in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul's prayer here reminds us, I think, of something very important. It reminds us that, that there is no cap on Christ's love. There is no limit to the power of Christ's love. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Well, it's the love he's given you, the love he's given to the needy, not the worthy. And so if the Lord gave it to you and he's going to give you what you need to continue on in that love and increase and abound through the the things that are lacking in your faith, being shored up by the word of truth, it's going to take place. It's going to happen. See, Christ, Christ's love to us, God's love to us in Christ is poured out on us for this very reason. It's poured out on us to conform us to himself. And it's poured out on us so that we can pour that love out on others. Verse 12, look at it again. There's no cap. There's no limit. You can you can only love the Christians. You can only love the reformed Christians. You can only love the Facebook Christians. No, he's saying, look, the love that you've received magnifies the grace that you have been given in Christ. You better show it to magnify the one who is all sufficient that can keep you in his love. That love should overflow, he's telling us in verse 12. It should overflow the container that it has been poured out into. It should overflow because that love is what set us apart to serve God in the first place. And that love was given to us for a specific reason, to magnify the power of Christ's full salvation. Not just in the future, but even in the present. And that's something we need to keep in mind. You know, if you talk about all the time how, man, one day, you know, I'll be holy, I won't have sin in me, and I'm looking forward to that day, but eh, I can't help myself right now. That is a mockery of the full salvation that we have in Christ. Christ's love is sufficient to conform you to his image presently, not just in the future. It's progressive. It's not instantaneous. We would die if it was. We couldn't take the change. But it's gradual. It's consistent. And it's upward all the while looking forward to the great day of exaltation when Christ's work is put on full display through the redemption of his saints. The love of Christ that I think is something that we need to really think about when it comes to sanctification Here's, here's what the love of Christ does. The love of Christ, it constrains us to consider others as more significant than ourselves, right? 
And Jude tells us it also constrains us to go into the fire and pull some out. The love of Christ is what compels you to risk your life for the sake of his name. Let me ask you a question regarding that. Since, since the love of Christ can do that, it can, it can actually give us a new desire, a new affection for the lost. Do you think that that same love is sufficient to constrain your flesh? Is that love sufficient to restrain your lust? Is that love sufficient to sustain you and keep you from your fleshly angers? Is that love able to constrain your tongues or your fingers on Facebook? It is. It's more than sufficient because it's the love of Christ that has no limit. God's love in Christ is, is, is what is actually empowering our sanctification. It is God's love in Christ that transforms us to begin with and then continues to manifest his love and power through us through our pursuit of holiness. God's love in Christ is what empowers that pursuit. It empowers us so that we can glorify him through our transformation of our disciplines and our affections. We change because he changed us. We manifest it because of his grace. We do it for his praise. Not for our own pat on the back. Folks, if we if we ever get that the pursuit of sanctification is is done by God's love and magnified through the work of his son and manifest in his people. If we ever get that, the pursuit of sanctification will no longer be a burden. It'll be a glorious delight for the saints. It'll be a delight because in that pursuit What we get to see is we get to see the fruit of Christ's love being manifest in our own lives. The supernatural work of God. Have you ever considered this? Sometimes you look around and you see a lost person that you normally would see and just look right over them. But now God has given you a compassion for them that makes you go out of your way to love them and speak to them and care for them. That's a supernatural manifestation of the work of Christ's love in your heart being displayed. And if you if you want to see that, if you want to see Jesus made much of, that will drive you in your sanctification to delight in this pursuit. That's what Paul, I think, is getting to in verse 13. First Thessalonians 3.13. My last point here. In, in verse 13, we hear Paul's Christ exalting expectation and motivation in this petition. Oh, he's expecting something. He's expecting Christ to be glorified on the last day through the transformation of his people. And he expects that to motivate them to act now presently. Verse 13, he prays that God may establish their hearts, make firm their hearts, stabilize their faith, stabilize their understanding, stabilize their affections. We establish their hearts blameless in holiness Give them a true understanding of why they can stand before God without shame because of Christ. They have nothing to fear because of Christ's atoning work at the cross. Nothing but praise for his name on the last day. That is going to drive you to enjoy the pursuit of holiness. We are already considered blameless in Christ. That condition before God should establish our faith, establish our motivation to pursue holiness with the joy The joy of seeing Christ exalted through it. He says, I want to establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
the glorious expectation he's talking about here. Paul's goal in this last part in this prayer is that through this glorious expectation, Christians will be able to stand firm in the presence of God on that day, blameless when they come to the Bema seat when Christ returns. For the lost, that will not be a day of pleasant exaltation and rejoicing. It'll be a day of cowering and bowing as Christ is exalted as their judge. We will come to that day rejoicing because Christ was already judged in our place and he is now our savior. When he returns, the work he did in us, he's going to cultivate, bring to the top. He's going to say those good deeds, those righteous acts. That's me. That's for my sake. That's for my name. That's to elevate the power of the cross that I went to to satisfy God's wrath against you so that you would see how glorious and wonderful our God is and his mercy and grace to those who deserve his wrath. Paul expects that and wants that to motivate us as Christians. He wants this glorious hope, this expectation that Christ is coming. Listen, the coming of Christ and the Bema seat is a seat of rewards for the Christian, not a seat of judgment against you and condemning you. You've already been condemned in Christ at the cross. Your condemnation fell on him and he paid the penalty in your place. Now you can look forward to the day of rewards for what he accomplished by his grace. We look forward to that day. And the looking forward to that day transforms us today. It's what brings about sanctification today. On that day, Christians will not be condemned before God. Christians will be able to actually see what Christ accomplished in their own lives, that on that day, it'll be revealed. It'll be even rewarded, which is radically amazing to me because I can't even imagine I'm in by grace. I've kept by grace. I'm rewarded because of grace, all because of Jesus. Paul, Paul's wanting to shape their thinking, keep them from legalism, keep them from the, the Judaic idea that they would have had. And some of the Pharisees were teaching at the time that Christ lived. He wants to protect them by, by telling there's a, there's a glorious reward coming. It's the reward of Christ's fruit in you that's blooming. It's it's showing the abounding love of Christ because it's, it's coming out of you. And on that day, you are privileged to be able to see it. You don't see it now. One one great writer said this. We we often don't get to see the work that we have tilled until we lay under it. Right. Until we're dead. We don't always get to see the work that takes place in our lives. But one day we will because we'll see Christ being glorified through the good works of the saints. On that day, here's what happens. God will claim all his own. He will claim them as those who have been set apart from eternity past throughout eternity future. He set them apart for his own praise and adoration to testify to the accomplishment of Christ in their place. On that day, he'll claim us as his own set apart. He'll do that all because of the love that was brought to us, that abounded toward us in the full reconciliation of Christ at the cross and then secured us in that standing that he stood in in our place as our substitute who is righteous for us. That kind of uniting, reconciling love is what's going to change us now presently. He's promising us on the last day, there's a glorious expectation on the last day, you will stand blameless Let that wash over your minds now in your struggle with sin. You have been declared righteous in God's sight by his grace through Christ's sacrifice. If that can't motivate holiness, nothing can. 
Rules can't do it. Church attendance can't do it. The blood of Christ is enough. That's what leads to rejoicing in holiness. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've been cleansed by his blood for eternity, then that means it's also going to show up presently. It's going to be manifested. It's going to be something that's magnified through your sanctification and your progress in the faith presently. You've been justified by faith in Christ's love. That love is going to produce its good work in us. Saints, I think that Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3 helps us see that the the common denominator between our, our new position in Christ and our practice in life is this. It is God's all-sufficient and purifying love that abounds toward us in Christ Jesus. That love is what changes us. God's love in Christ is the soil, again, in which our Christ-exalting sanctification will grow and prosper. I want you to meditate on this one last thing as I conclude. Three, three things to think about. And, and consider this in your own pursuit of holiness this morning, because I'm sure that some of you are going to struggle with some of these points and have struggled. Uh, I want to I fill in what is lacking in your faith. The power of our sanctification does not come from our own perfection. It doesn't come from our devotion. The power of our sanctification comes from Christ's devotion. His devotion to glorify himself and his sanctifying salvation. The progress, not just the power, but the progress of our sanctification does not come from our own perfect love, our own ability to love in our own strength. The progress comes from Christ's love and his passion to magnify his cleansing love. And then the reward we receive on the last day. The reward of our sanctification does not come out of moral perfectionism. The reward that we receive in sanctification comes from Christ's expectation to reveal his saving perfections. His character, his work, his praise is what he expects to see brought to light on the last day. That is our reward. Listen, heaven is not the reward. Jesus is the reward. Heaven's where we get the reward. Heaven is not the reward. If you don't love Jesus now, you're going to hate heaven. But if you love Christ now, even though you fail him, even though you fall short of him, Heaven will be a delight because he's there as your reminder of your cleansing and your sanctification. You've been set apart unto him. Saints, we've, we've been sanctified by Jesus' devotion, by Jesus' passion, by his perfection. And, and that means then that his, his abounding love that we have, that God has expressed to us in his sacrifice, that was already set upon us, it's, it's set upon us for a reason, so that we could make much of it now and for eternity. I want you to understand something. This is just phenomenal to stop and think about. We have to think about it in human terms. We need to think about it in the, the, the biblical terms of love. The love of God in Christ knows no bounds. It's poured out richly upon us because of Christ's love for us. And it is intended to produce a Christ-exalting praise in us in eternity. I mean... All of heaven sings about the lamb that was slain for eternity. And that same love that that has no bounds in eternity, it certainly has no bounds in the present either. 
That same love we should rejoice in now just as much as we will in eternity, because that same love is now what empowers and motivates us to pursue sanctification presently and pursue it joyfully. See, I think the church at Thessalonica was was possibly discouraged. They're they're trying hard. They're doing evangelism man. they're going all over the place. They're, they're working. They're getting persecuted for it. Maybe they're discouraged. Maybe they're thinking, ah. I'm not sure about this. And it's just easier to go along with the flow of the culture. But but God's saying, no, look, look, look up. Look to what I did. I want you to rest. I'm going to bring about a great, glorious reward in you and through you that magnifies Christ. Keep going. Let that change the way you interact in chapter four with your own sin. Again, the love of Christ cannot constrain Indwelling sin, there is nothing on this planet that can. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Um, We thank you for the grace that saves, sets us apart, and promises full and final glorification. And in the time between, empowers sanctification. So that we can make much of Jesus on the last day. That is our glorious expectation. That is what that is what keeps us grounded and stable and established in our present circumstances and struggles with sin and the world. Help us to keep our minds upon that when we when we doubt our salvation, when we doubt your love. Let us remember that you did the greater thing in sending Christ to die for us. You can certainly accomplish the lesser thing and keep us in that love. We pray that you would be glorified as we meditate on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.